I don't think there's a sort of any particular magic sauce that you can put into the cooking, as it were, of resource-rich countries. But there are a certain set of principles, and one is to avoid macroeconomic disequilibrium, to avoid overspending, to avoid overaccumulation of debt. And the other is to very rigorously think of through what you're going to do with the revenues in terms of investments. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Extractive industries continue to play a crucial role in the economies of many low- and middle-income countries. As the world begins to recover from the coronavirus pandemic and countries begin engaging in a new round of climate change negotiations, it is important for us to better understand the links between extractives, economic growth and poverty reduction on the one hand, and our ability to promote sustainable development and to address climate disruption on the other. This is particularly important because climate action will create new winners and new losers in the extractive sectors. So how should low and middle income countries manage oil and gas and mining resources in the light of climate change? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tony Addison, who's a professor of economics at the University of Copenhagen and a non-resident senior research fellow at United Nations University, UNU Wider in Helsinki. Tony and I discussed the lessons learned from low and middle income countries that have actually successfully managed their revenues from extractive resources, how some of these countries can benefit from growing global interest in transitioning to renewable energy, the impact of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, and the international community's role in natural resource governance in low income country contexts. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Tony, it's so lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks uh, for inviting me, Dan. As you know, we've just had a general election in Norway and climate became a major issue. It turned out that, you know, three weeks before the elections, the IPCC report came out and many political parties began citing the call by the UN Secretary General in terms of an end to fossil fuels and uh, political leaders, at least some political leaders were calling for an end date for oil exploration in Norway, you know, oil that has made us all rich and, and has funded very generously this Norwegian welfare state. But what happened was a very polarized debate on the role of oil and gas in Norway, whether we should be talking about an end date, whether the Norwegian practice of oil exploration is actually pretty green and, you know, it's better that Norway produces, you know, uh, renewable energy and, and even oil exploration in a different, in a better way than other countries. It was just an endless kind of a discussion. But the debate, Tony, as I understand in many other parts of the world, is very different, is it not? Because extractive industries, as in metals, minerals, but also oil and gas, they continue to play a very important role in many economies of low and middle income countries. And in many of these countries I see in your book and in also in other articles, there's actually been a strong and positive increase in the levels of dependence that these countries have on the export of extractives. And I'm thinking about countries like Chad and Sudan and Mozambique. So let's begin by discussing the fact that although high-income countries like Norway may dominate the extractives production figures, countries with the highest levels of export dependence on extractives are actually predominantly low- and middle-income countries. So Tony, how should we nuance this discourse on the links between extractives, economic growth and poverty on the one hand and sustainable development and our ability to combat climate disruption on the other? Well, it is um, true that um, many or indeed probably most low income countries and certainly a large number of middle income countries 
are very dependent on oil and gas together with mining for both um, export revenues and uh, also for a large proportion of their um, public revenues. And uh, to a degree, that dependence has actually not been diminishing over time for many countries. It's actually been increasing, particularly since the start of the new century and um, the uh, global commodity supercycle that kicked off, particularly due to the growth of China and China's voracious demand for energy resources and for um, minerals of, of all types. So, so that's our sort of current um, situation in many countries. And that's obviously a, a very big challenge for them. It's, a, it's always been a challenge in terms of macroeconomic management. And we've known about that for decades because commodity prices are something of a roller coaster. But it's also now a massive challenge in the light of climate change action and policy, particularly as we come up to the um, COP conference very shortly in Glasgow. So we, we really are in a, a kind of um, a new situation, the world of extractives, not only for oil and gas, but also for mining, in that we're, we're really coming up against the um, environmental and uh, climate change issues in a very big way. So, so the old story of how you manage these resources is now, as it were, seeking into a new story about how do we manage those in the light of, of climate change. And that's obviously an issue in very rich countries like Norway, but it's a very big issue in, in the poorer world because they've got so much investment in these resources and they are, as I've said, so dependent on them for their export earnings and indeed for their public revenues. So is it a simple question of the richer parts of the world reducing their dependence on extractive industries while you know, other parts, developing countries, perhaps continue with that focus? Because it is going to be important, the extractive industries, for many of these countries in the years ahead, right? Well, you could say that from a, an ethical viewpoint, given that the world has a carbon budget and... Um, we're rapidly eating into what's left of that carbon budget because we know that um, global temperatures have risen by about 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And we have this target of containing the rise within 1.5. So we're not very far off that. So, so given the global carbon budget that we have left, you could argue that there's a very strong ethical case for the developing world to be the main producers of these resources and for the richer world, and this would not only be the, uh, the economies of Europe, but also the Middle East and so forth, to, to actually cut back, to, uh, to actually leave their fossil fuels in particular, their oil, coal and gas, in the ground. That would be a, you know, an ethical and a, a moral response. But the uh, realpolitik of this, the geopolitics, essentially means that all countries, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, really in some ways want to continue down the same path they're all they're all issuing um you know very bold statements about climate change and you know how they're aiming to achieve net zero by some date usually far off in the future yes um but the geopolitics are the geopolitics you know i'm thinking about the fact that not everything has to be negative right there this whole transition to this renewable energy era can you know, be actually quite positive. I'm thinking about countries that produce nickel and uh, cobalt and lithium. We are all driving EVs, at least in Norway, you know, 60% of the new cars are all electric. There's the need for greater battery storage capacity, not just for cars, but also for other sectors. And some of these low and medium income countries are rich in these minerals and they could become very important Obviously, and we'll talk about the governance aspects later on, but there is surely the case that can be made that some of these countries are actually quite well positioned to benefit from this new renewable energy era. The question, of course, is whether they're able to. Well, they are well positioned in the sense that they have the mineral deposits and, um, you know, those mineral deposits are going to be in high demand, particularly if you're a producer of um, 
lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, all of the things that are required for the um, electric vehicle revolution to make the wind turbines, to make the battery storage and um, so forth. But that gives you two problems, one of which is you've got to manage the macroeconomics of that. So you don't simply replace or follow the pathway that some of the oil economies did historically, falling into a resource cursed trap. But secondly, mining those minerals involves emissions, It involves carbon emissions. Often the energy system that you're using in mining is uh, coal-fired electricity. Uh, you have a biodiversity impact. You have a water impact, particularly if you're mining um, lithium. So the challenge there is how are the countries and the companies, the mining companies, going to achieve net zero in mining? It's, it's not just good enough to produce the nickel and the cobalt and the lithium. We're going to have to produce it in ways that don't add to emissions. And that could be actually pretty expensive, right? It's going to be wildly expensive uh, because you're going to need large-scale investment in renewable energy. And in uh, some cases, mines are actually the biggest energy consumer in an economy. You think about, say, South Africa, where a lot of mining is basically driven by uh, coal-fired electricity. Uh, you're going to need a lot of uh, technical assistance to do that. If you do it, though, there is an advantage, which is you're going to get a, a premium in the marketplace. Your metals are going to sell for a higher price because you'll be able to say demonstrably to Apple or to Tesla or whichever company is buying the metal, look, this has been produced under net zero conditions with absolutely, say, no biodiversity impact and hopefully a very good benefit for communities. That's actually a very good point. So it's not just you know, supplying something that is in great demand, but also supplying it in an environmentally friendly way, at least the production aspect. Tony, I'm thinking about the case of Guinea, which, you know, recently underwent a coup. And there's been the spotlight on Guinea's uh, huge bauxite reserves. Apparently, a country with 13 million people has the world's largest reserves of bauxite, which is of course, important for aluminium. And I know that China is important to this story because China imports a lot of bauxite and it's important for the Chinese industry. And, you know, a country like Guinea, of course, has the mining sector is important in terms of gold and diamonds and all of that. But Guinea hasn't done as well as, say, Botswana, which often is highlighted as one of those success stories. What should Guinea do? at this moment, you know, the, the military junta in power or whatever happens in terms of a new election, what kind of issues should policymakers be, be looking at? Well, Guinea, as you say, Dan, has got immense um, mineral resources. It's not just um, it's bauxite, which produces something like 20% of the world's global aluminium supply, but it's also gold and also Guinea's enormous deposits of iron ore, which have not yet really been exploited. So this is a country that's a classic case of a country that has enormous potential to raise itself up to middle income status pretty fast, indeed to high income status, to, to follow that Botswana model, if it can only just get the, the policy, but also the politics right. And unfortunately, the history of Guinea has been characterized by a lot of non-transparency around the resources sector and a lot of um, corruption around the resources sector. So what any government in Guinea has to do is to signal that this time it's going to be different, that it's credible in terms of full transparency, which of course is absolutely essential for its own citizens, but also for the, um, the investment community. So it gets the investment that it needs and that the world community can actually see that these resources are being produced in a transparent manner and that all of the revenue is, is flowing to the people of Guinea. Sounds easy, but hmm. that is a massive challenge, as we know from elsewhere in Africa, not just Guinea. This brings me to this resource curse versus economic diversification argument. And you may have heard others on my show talking about resource curse. 
I recently spoke with Paul Collier on this for season three, and there seems to be quite a lot of attention on the resource curse thesis, corruption, bad leadership, bad governance, all of this somehow explaining why resource-rich countries haven't developed. But there's also been considerable pushback from others saying that you can't really group this very diverse group of countries together and, and call them resource-rich because they're very different kinds of countries you're talking about, different types of minerals, oil reserves. We're talking about petroeconomies like Chad and Cameroon and and I also notice in your book, so-called lootable economies, some people use that term, such as Angola and Liberia and DRC that have so-called lucrative pockets of extractives wealth, like diamonds and gemstones. And then we're talking about conventional mineral producers like Ghana, Guinea and Zambia and Tanzania. So that's one side of the story. And then you have, of course, Botswana that we've just mentioned. And then we have Norway that is often seen to be this excellent model of natural resource governance. Of course, it does help that in Norway, most of it was offshore oil. It didn't disrupt the local society. And so the point here is that, and I noticed this in your work too, that there's a lot of focus on resource curse and you know the importance of good governance. But even though you know we could all agree that good institutions are crucial, the experience so far, it turns out, is that technocratic institution building is severely limited sometimes. Could you elaborate on this issue? Well, the name resource curse became popular because so many of these countries with resources fell into deep distress. But I think, you know, I think we would agree, and I say this as an economist, economists by training often sort of look for simple explanations, <laughs> but if you're looking at the history of Venezuela or the Democratic Republic of the Congo or whatever resource-rich country you're looking at, simple sort of nostrums about, you know, institutional weakness or good or bad governance only take you so far. You have to really look very deeply into the histories of those economies and societies. Obviously, their histories in the colonial era, but also their histories post-independence. So, you know, we, we, we have that difficulty and we know that actually reforming institutions is a much, much tougher task than we would say have envisaged 30 years ago when, you know, we were rather, as a profession, a profession of development economists, rather gung-ho about what could be achieved. But I think the word transparency is important because sometimes, you know, in these societies, it does come down to blatant non-transparency and blatant corruption. And, you know, I, I don't wish to imply it's all, all internally in the politics of those countries, because international actors have a great role to play in actually feeding some of that corruption and facilitating some of that non-transparency. And we think here particularly of, of some of the oil companies and their histories, some of the mining companies and some of the commodity trading companies. So, yeah, it is a, a sort of simple way to say, okay, let's you know improve institutions and let's improve transparency. I think those are very important, but we also have to think very hard about the histories of these countries and you know where they are coming from. So, did it help Botswana that it was democratic? Is that the key thing, or was it also the fact that it had diamonds uh, different from maybe other? resources you know what what would you highlight as as the lessons learned of those countries that did manage and i'm not, not talking about norway you know other countries that have somehow managed to 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 actually promote social inclusion rather than social exclusion that have actually managed to use revenues from extractive resources to to advance social um, not just inclusion but also investments in education and health and and infrastructure what do we know what is the evidence so far? Well, Botswana is the standout example. And in some ways, the success of Botswana is down to cattle. Because um, cattle is so important to um, the society in Botswana and indeed to the economy, Botswana had to maintain a, a, a good exchange rate to maintain its cattle exports. 
so that when the diamond income, the diamond earnings began to flow, the policymakers in Botswana were very concerned to avoid what we saw in Nigeria after the flow of oil revenue, which is an overvalued exchange rate. So Botswana at the very early stage um, engaged in, in really quite good macroeconomic management. And one of the keys to Botswana was that it's always had a, a strong emphasis on, on the plan, on the national plan, right from the very start of its, um, its post-independence history. And so, you know, when you talk to, say, a minister in fi of finance in Botswana, what they'll say to you is that when some um, sector ministry comes to them, say a ministry of industries or whatever it is, and says, we have this great opportunity in, you know, some investment in a particular area, the finance minister can say, well, you know, how does this accord with the national plan? So that, that involves some discipline and some um, assessment of the costs and the benefits. So I think, you know, Botswana is, a, is a, again, an example of, of how the history of a country is both informative. You know, one can understand where that good policy making came from. But there's also a question about whether the lessons are actually very transferable to other countries with, with very different cultures and societies and um, political systems. I don't think there's a sort of any particular magic source that you can put into the cooking, as it were, of um, resource-rich countries. Um, but there are a certain set of principles, and one is to avoid macroeconomic disequilibrium, to avoid overspending, to avoid um, overaccumulation of debt. And the other is to very rigorously think of through what you're going to do with the um, the revenues in terms of investments, really what are good sectors and what are good activities to invest in. I think that's a, that's a very, very important um, principle. I often use the Norwegian example, of course, in terms of the sovereign wealth fund and, you know, we're saving for a rainy day. And much of the recent discourse we've had in Norway, at least during the election campaign, has been to use this, you know, huge wealth fund and the, and the money that we've saved to actually help facilitate the green transition. And um, interestingly enough, I think it was yesterday, one of the big newspapers, major dailies in, in Denmark, had this front page headline saying, if Norway with its trillions of dollars in the wealth fund can't make the green transition, who can? So everybody seems to be, well, some people, at least our neighbors seem to be looking up to Norway to, to, to make certain changes and, and decisions that could actually help other countries. But whenever I talk about the Norwegian example, of course, one of the responses is that, oh, but the Norwegian example isn't relevant. Just as you were saying about the Botswana experience can't necessarily be transferred to other countries. And the argument I've heard from low-income countries is that, you know, we can't really save for a rainy day. So it is all about, you know, using those revenues to do something about poverty reduction for, for, for social protection programs, etc. And then, of course, the, the next set of issues we end up discussing is you know, about legislation, about taxation, all of these issues that, again, the Norwegians have tried to somehow impart their experience in terms of this program that NORAD, the Norwegian Agency for Development Corporation, has had called Oil for Development. But I was looking at some of the, the evaluations and it turns out that these sort of bits of advice that the Norwegians were imparting to other countries had limited impact because it really was about politics. You know, you could come up with all these well-intentioned guidelines and advice, but politicians were not necessarily showing the kind of ownership that is required for these initiatives, such as legislation, taxation, etc., to have an impact. Yes, I mean, you can write these things into law and then the politics can take over. So, for example, one standard recommendation from economics is that um, resource-abundant countries should deploy a fiscal rule whereby they save a portion of their revenue for a rainy day and a rainy day stabilisation fund. But really, the only country that's made that work politically is actually Chile. Most um, other countries have actually overridden their fiscal rule often previous to elections. So there's a sort of electoral cycle involved here. But but I think, you know, the, the, the issue about saving versus investing 
is an important one because, you know, low-income countries have so many potential investment opportunities, particularly in the health and education area, that you really have to ask yourself, well, why would you be saving for a rainy day far in the future when um, you could be investing the money in good quality primary education and rural health care, particularly advancing the agenda of uh, female education? And we know that from all the evidence that providing quality education has got really very high social returns and also private returns in higher terms of higher earnings and benefits to nutrition and so on. So, you know, when I always look at the, um, the investment profile of a country, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask policymakers is, do you actually feel you're investing enough in those key critical development areas? And that's before you go on to consider, you know, fancy things like having a sovereign wealth fund or an industrial policy or whatever is the flavor of the month. Yeah, I I take your point. And I, you know, I don't mean that uh, low income countries should be saving, but Venezuela is an interesting example here, isn't it? Because one went out and began these very expensive populist programs on a spending spree without being financially prudent. So, it is more about maybe having, you know, I'm just thinking about having some sort of a backup plan, you know, some savings, not much, but at least some kind of cushioning for the, the immediate future while investing as much as one can now. Well, I think it's um, uh, perfectly reasonable and quite desirable for countries to have some savings in uh, very liquid assets. These are usually um, U.S. Treasury bonds that they can sell at quite short notice to um, defend the budget and public spending or to defend the currency. Uh, And that's quite a reasonable thing to do. But when countries get sucked into intergenerational savings, basically saying we will be saving for future generations, that's perfectly fine in Norway, which is already a high income society. But in low income countries, there's a tremendous opportunity cost there. And unfortunately, many of these sovereign wealth funds have been extremely badly run. You know, they've had corruption problems of their own. So Libya, for example, is sitting in an enormous sovereign wealth fund at the moment, which is completely unused because of the political situation there. Uh, The situation in Equatorial Guinea, completely opaque, non-transparent sovereign wealth fund. Um, Again, Botswana is the standard example of building a sovereign wealth fund, which has been of benefit to the nation. But sovereign wealth funds are are really quite um, tricky things if they're intergenerational sovereign wealth funds. So it's not just actually governments, right? It's also all kinds of partners that a government has internationally that is that is important for the extractive industry, the way in which these wealth funds are governed, the way in which revenues are, are shared. Uh, with communities, there may be NGOs and, you know, all kinds of uh, different actors involved. I want to um, ask you about the role of some of these external stakeholders, especially, let's say, you know, donor agencies, um, rich countries through foreign aid programs, trying to help better manage uh, the natural resources in some of these countries. What should donors be doing? Because in the book, I've seen some examples of, say, the erstwhile uh, DFID in Britain, having had uh, some interesting programs, I believe, in Ghana and Kenya, elsewhere. You mentioned Chile. I don't know if there was uh, the, the involvement of any aid agencies there. But what should donors be thinking about? What should they be prioritizing if they were to help some of these countries better govern their natural resources? So I think um, donors really need to help countries think about the entire portfolio of their natural resources. So if you're an oil and gas economy, you should be thinking about your mineral resources. But also all countries should be setting alongside those non-renewable resources, their renewable resources, their soils, their fisheries, their forests, their biodiversity. Because it's that really, it's in those um, renewable resources, in the natural capital, as it's called, that the true wealth of many of these countries sits. So in 30 or 50 years time, 
oil and gas resources will be probably entirely without much commercial, if any, value. They have to be because we need to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere. But the tropical forests and the biodiversity, particularly in Africa, um, the seas and the fisheries and all the rest of it, all the rest of the natural capital, they, they truly have immense value. And their destruction, including by new mining projects or new oil and gas projects, that's irreversible damage. So, so donors really need to, to help countries think about how they can build their portfolio of resources and balance between the different types of resource and make sure that they don't overuse their natural capital, make sure that they sustain it. And that implies carbon pricing. It means um, carbon capture and storage when they're engaged in oil and gas. But it also means regulation, community impact, community forestry. It means doing what um, Gabon is doing and uh, the assistance that Gabon is now getting in terms of um, payments on carbon credits and so forth. That's where that's the direction that we need to, to go in. Let's talk about EITI and its impact, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which, as I understand it, has been implementing the global standard for the promotion of open and accountable management of oil, gas, minerals, etc. And apparently this standard by EITI requires disclosure of information about the extractive industry value chain, the points of extraction, how revenues make their way through government, uh, government, how they benefit the public, all of this with the aim of strengthening public and, and corporate governance. Now, what has been the EITI's impact in your view so far? Because I understand that at the moment there are 55 countries implementing this standard. And there's a, you know, lots of governments, companies and civil society organizations have been involved. But has, has, have things been working? What, what is your view on, on EITI? Well, EITI is, has been a, a very uh, sound investment by the donor community and a very sound activity for both governments and civil society that have become involved with it. And compared to say the year 2000 before all of this began we're in a much better position than we were then certainly 20 years ago in understanding the flows of revenue around the extractive sectors and understanding where the problems are arising in terms of missing revenues and in terms of licensing regulation and and so forth the difficulty of course that eiti runs up against inevitably is the politics of many of these countries. But it is a very um, useful means for civil society in particular to place pressure on governments and indeed on companies to to act uh, responsibly. And um, countries that are not EITI members, that raises all kinds of flags. It raises flags including for investors. Because alongside ET, we, we have the rise of ESG, which is environmental, social and governance investing, which has become particularly important, for example, in the Nordic countries and the management of our pension funds. And, you know, when a pension fund is looking at investments, it's also in some senses looking at you know, the quality of, say, an investment in a, a country and whether it is ET, ET compliant. At the moment, very few, if any, mining projects are actually um, ESG compliant. But, you know, over time, what we want to see is the industry push itself basically to establish net zero mining, to have a, a very full accountability of the revenues and to have a good, solid community and environmental impact. And then ESG investors might go in and invest in that um, in that mining operation and, and the associated company. So I think ET has been very important in sort of creating a, an environment of discussion, an environment of action. But nevertheless, you know, there are quite large technical difficulties around actually interpreting the information that's now available in the public domain. But at least we have it in the public domain, which is what we never had 20 years ago. 
So I was actually having a look at the EITI's website, Tony, and it turns out that of these countries that are members, that there are only two countries that have been suspended currently due to political instability. One is Myanmar and the other is the Central African Republic. And most of the others are either classified as having satisfactory progress or meaningful progress or sometimes inadequate progress. So the question to you, Tony, is do you think it is easy in some of these international initiatives to actually delist, suspend countries? How, how high is the bar for suspension? Well, I think the, um, the ET board very carefully considers these things. And Myanmar is a is a unfortunate example of where they've had to take action. But, you know, there are also countries, Dan, that um, have been rejected in terms of ET membership. And I'm thinking here of Equatorial Guinea, which has tried to join on several occasions and which I believe is still not a yet a member. And that is a very strong signal, yeah. both to the government of Equatorial Guinea, but also to others involved in Equatorial Guinea, that something really is not going right here and needs to improve. But yes, you're right, like all of these international initiatives, it runs up against the hard politics of development. And if there's one thing that we've learned over 30 years, it's that politics sometimes dominates economics and politics quite often dominates democracy and democracies are very imperfect. But I think civil societies and civil society organizations and actors like Global Witness, ET and others in this, this area, they're doing invaluable work. But what really needs to happen is that we also need action in the advanced economies, in the OECD economies as, as well, um, to really um, push very hard on corruption and transparency. I mean, the commodity trading sector, you know, the big commodity trading companies, that's been a, a really bad sector for many, many years. They're, they're constantly saying now that they've improved. And yet we quite regularly read reports in the media about, you know, yet another oil trader or yet another mining um, venture that's caught up in some corruption scandal with an oil trading company or a, a metal trading company. And, and really, we do need a lot more uh, terms of sanctions and investigations in the commodity trading space. Talking about these different actors involved in the extractive industries, Tony, you, you know, there are these uh, companies that are branded as being enlightened companies. And, uh, you know, if you could have a government that is effective and inclusive and it practices effective and inclusive governance, working together with these enlightened companies, of course, that would be, as you put it in the book, an ideal combination. But uh, conversely, ineffective and divisive government combined with rogue companies is, of course, the worst. Now, do you see many more of these so-called enlightened companies being active in, in this sector? And, and are these companies mainly from, from the West? Or do you also see uh, some of these companies from, say, emerging countries? The um, International Council of Mining and Metals in London, which was established um, oh, over a decade ago, has been doing really very good work with the companies that have signed up to its standards in terms of pushing a better agenda um, on, this, um, on this. That doesn't mean to say that those companies do everything right. So, for example, um, Rio Tinto, um, the, um, the boss of Rio Tinto uh, a few months back, had to resign as a result of the fiasco where Rio Tinto managed to destroy a, an, ag an Aboriginal um, heritage site in Australia. But, you know, the very fact that these companies are now signed up to an organization like ICMM means there's a lot of peer pressure and a lot of industry pressure upon them. And you saw that in the, um, the role that ICMM and others took, ESG investors, for example, in the um, initiative on um, tailings dams after the disaster of Valle in Brazil a few years back. Unfortunately, the oil companies... I would say the oil companies behind the mining companies in terms of progress, they don't really have an ICMM. And 
obviously their commitment to the climate agenda is still really quite unconvincing in many ways. And they are still operating in some countries with with pretty dubious standards of either politics or human rights. So the oil sector really does need cleaning up. As you say, there's now a whole raft of emerging market companies moving into these um, economies. And industry associations like ICMM are doing hard work to try and sign them up. And I believe there are some Chinese companies that are now moving towards membership or indeed are in membership. But this is this is a key concern. But you, sh- you shouldn't forget, you shouldn't forget that, you know, in emerging economies like China, China is taking an enormous amount of action now on its own emissions and climate change agenda. And, you know, its own concern now to establish uh, responsible supply chains for the inputs it uses, to a degree has, you know, a commercial rationale behind it, which is that Increasingly, in a global market, we as consumers want to buy products where we know that there has been no use of child labor, that environmental standards have been followed and and so forth. And Chinese products are as much concern or more concern to us than, say, products made in in Europe or or North America. So there is actually a a strong commercial reason for um, China, India and other emerging market economies to come into line. Uh, with these new evolving global standards. There have been some really positive signals coming from China of late. In the last three weeks, there's been all kinds of reports saying that, you know, I've been and I've been following the the construction of coal-fired power plants in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and um, now there is this directive for greening the Belt and Road Initiative, which says that Chinese companies shouldn't just, as in the past, abide by national legislation, which, as you mentioned, sometimes is very weak. Now there are higher level requirements that the Chinese government has asked Chinese companies to pursue. And these are more international requirements for sustainable development and and green energy, etc. So the, the, the positive thing I notice is that Chinese companies are now much more reluctant if they haven't already cancelled all you know, future coal-fired power plants that they were planning to build on the African continent. So I, I think that, that is a pretty you know, impressive development. Yes, and don't forget there's a tremendous um, commercial opportunity for China or indeed other um, companies in um, sustainable and renewable energy in Africa. I mean, we know that um, Africa is using maybe less than 1% of its potential in wind power. I mean, this is quite extraordinary, the low levels of wind power use in Africa. And again, China may well be the main supplier of that technology in the future, particularly if it is part of its um, aid program around the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think, you know, we, we may see a lot of action coming from uh, from that direction. And of course, you shouldn't forget in the, the oil and gas market that China's um, movement up towards a national carbon market and carbon pricing means that it's increasingly looking for cargoes of liquefied natural gas with the lowest emissions. So China is going to be a big driver of um, emission standards in the Asian gas market because the Asian gas market is the big growing market and any gas producer that wants to get access to that market is going to have to minimize its emissions it's going to have to minimize its methane emissions and it's probably going to have to engage in a great deal of um, carbon offset in the future in order to sell those cargoes of lng to china so i think we shouldn't underestimate how big a, a, a standard setter china could emerge in both the uh, existing fossil fuels area, and you mentioned coal, but there's also also gas and oil, but also in the areas of uh, renewable power, uh, wind and solar, and also in um, being probably the world's largest producer of electric vehicles and the standards around electric vehicles and the and the mine the mineral content that goes into those electric vehicles. That that is really interesting, Tony, because when I look at India and China, I see. A bit of a paradox in the sense that while China 
has made all the right noises and talks about its firm commitment to towards green transitions, etc. Both India and China, of course, rely heavily on, say, coal, right? So China has done, I suppose, better somewhat in terms of renewable energy. I don't have the uh, the total overview here, and I know that India has been uh, been pretty successful in terms of solar power, etc. There's now some people say the Indian electricity sector is on the cusp of a solar powered revolution, but the fact of the matter is that these two big giants in Asia still rely on fossil fuels and will continue to do so for the near future. India has a really growing demand for um, oil and gas, and indeed coal going into, well, the immediate uh, future. If you look at the reports by the International Energy Agency on India's demand, uh, and you know the, the point that the IE makes is that a lot of this energy demand, future energy demand, is going to come from stuff that um, India has not yet built. But at the same time, there's a tremendous advantage or possibility for India, as indeed there is for China and other emerging economies in the area of energy storage because you know what the world needs is really good energy storage technologies we have the wind we have the solar but we haven't yet really got on top of the problem with the intermittency in supply so we still need the the coal and we still need the gas for driving the thermal power plants that provide the base load of electricity so what we need is much more energy storage. We need much more technological innovation around that energy storage. And it's quite conceivable you will see China, but possibly India, if it invests enough um, of its science and technology resources, as quite big innovators and suppliers of energy storage technologies. And that would be of immense value to those countries themselves, but also to Africa and indeed to the rest of the, of the world. So there are tremendous commercial opportunities there. Sometimes this debate on renewable transitions, green energy, all of this assumes that it is all win-win, that everybody will want it. And the experience we've had in Norway in recent years, especially in terms of wind power, is quite illustrative of some of the democratic sort of challenges. A lot of people don't want these windmills in their villages, in their area. If it is offshore, just like oil has been in Norway, it doesn't disrupt communities, that's fine. But I don't want it here. I want it somewhere else. Do you see that kind of debate also affecting this adoption of or the encouragement towards these renewable energy transitions elsewhere in the world? I think if you're providing tangible gain to communities, say in Africa, which have had no grid electricity, but you're able to invest and say, this grid electricity will be supplied by the wind turbine. And by the way, we, we need to build a gravity storage facility on top of a hill so that we can store the electricity from this wind turbine. And this will then drive the, the power to your, to your school and to your homes and, and to your clinics. And if, if these people have had no electricity before, then I think there's going to be far less opposition than, say, you would get in a country like Norway. That said, where you are going to get a political problem, and you already have a political problem, is in coal mining communities in South Africa, in India, in China. We have this idea of a just transition, which is a sort of lovely phrase which people like to bring out, that you know this community is going to be given a great deal of help. But really, what is this just transition going to consist of? And, you know, there is, is quite likely you're going to see the politics of that being really quite uh, quite difficult and quite hard. And this actually is a problem also with the um, some of the discussion around local content. Um, for example, you know, if you're trying to develop an industry around coal mining to try and derive more local value added from coal mining, but the future of coal mining is pretty dismal. Well, you're simply making a lot more people dependent, you know, on a sector that's going to go out of business fairly soon. So the challenge with those communities is really to, you know, find new sources of economic activity. And that's going to be hard. Indeed. A final set of issues, Tony, has to do with one of the main messages in the book. And I will, of course, provide a link to that book. It's it's open access. And this message is the fact that, at least you argue, you and your co-authors, that climate action will create new winners 
and new losers among the extractive sectors. So the question is, who do you think will be the new winners and who do you think will be the losers? The new winners will be among the mineral economies that not only have the mineral resources, but also the institutional capacity and willingness to work with mining companies and mining investors to build green mining. So it's not enough just simply to have the iron ore or the lithium or the cobalt. You also have to have the ability, both technically and also politically, to work with the industry to deliver that kind of mining. So those economies be, will be the winners. And th those economies will be the winners because they'll also attract the investment. The ESG investors and indeed uh, multilateral development banks will work with those economies because there will be an, something of an assurance that the environmental impact will be good, that the community impact will be strong, and that the revenues will be flowing to where they are needed. The losers, the big losers, are going to be the smaller economies that have fossil fuels. So coal is going to go out of business. But also, if you're a small and costly oil producer, then you are going to face a lot of headwind because as the price of oil starts eventually to weaken, uh, you're a high cost producer. So you're going to become much less attractive for investment. And indeed, we've seen during the pandemic, the pullback by some large international investors from economies that are producing oil, but which are really quite um, high cost producers. This also applies to countries that have large amounts of oil, such as Venezuela, which has probably the largest reserves of oil in the world. But the oil is uh, very emissions intensive to extract or has a very high um, carbon content. So that's going to be the problem. Among the gas economies, among the gas economies, it's going to be the producers of gas uh, exporting it with by um, LNG uh, that can reduce their emissions, that can show consumers that this is very low or z net zero um, gas, which is a technical challenge. Uh, some of those gas economies might actually be able to move into hydrogen production which is something that we haven't um, discussed in this podcast, but which um, would be a, a very good uh, topic uh, for a future, um, future podcast. Mm -hmm. Probably among the oil and gas economies, the big winners are simply going to be the existing very large-scale producers uh, in the Gulf, in the Middle East, the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, um, possibly in Latin America, Guyana, which is going to be a very, very large oil producer. If I were a, um, an African country like um, Senegal, Angola, Uganda, I would be um, quite worried. Tony, it was great fun to chat with you today. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you, uh, Dan. It was a real um, pleasure to uh, speak with you and uh, to participate in what has been a, a great series of podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.